Thanks for coming back to Pretty Heady Stuff, a podcast about how communicators create and publicize their work. In this episode, I speak with Jeff Diamanti. Jeff is a professor of literary and cultural analysis at the University of Amsterdam and the author of a forthcoming book called Terminal Landscapes, Climate, Energy, Culture, and the Infrastructures of Post-Industrial Capital. We talk about some ways of restructuring our thinking about the economy and the environment. He reminds us that it's going to be destructive to refigure the current system if we have to argue that a turning point has been reached and this radical restructuring has to happen then we may need to figure out how to enter into a kind of political combat to do so. Maybe it's a matter of synthesizing research in intelligible ways or engaging more emotionally with the anxiety and anger people clearly feel or asking different questions about the extent of our attachment to energy. Either way, I hope you find this conversation useful as a way of thinking about the politics of climate change. It seems as though in order to pose a particular environmental crisis as a problem today requires us to not only cite scientifically verified data about global emergencies, but also to enter into a combative conversation about why the emergency is urgent, what your basic assumptions are in determining that it's urgent, and what the cost maybe of addressing the emergency will be most of all. What sort of responsibility do you feel this implies for communicators? Oh, uh, yeah, that's a lovely question. Um, so I think one of the things about the combative climate that you're describing, which I think is absolutely accurate, though I think it's changed as well. So maybe I'll say first that, uh, and I wonder what you think about this too. I mean, I feel like, you know, 10 years ago or so, kind of at the, at the cusp of Obama in the United States, it was a very different kind of combative cl- climate. Uh, to talk about climate and to try to suggest policy um, that would address what the science community had essentially been saying since 1988 when Hansen went on um, uh, te- testified in front of co- Congress. So, you know, I think in that moment there was the, com- the combative nature had to do with this, with a kind of denial uh, or, or something like a realism um, that, required puncturing basic ideological assumptions which were in the way of having a serious conversation about what was happening and what needed to be done politically. Um, I don't know that that's still true. I think that's still a problem. And obviously, obviously with Trump um, and his voter base, it's, 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 it's returned in a way. But I don't know that it's exactly the same, and I don't know that it's the, the primary problem. I think that um, the climate of combativeness that we experience now has to do with precisely like the um, consensus that now spreads across most of the world's polities, including the science community, but also the political communities like the EU and the UN, like there's not really a question anymore about whether or not we're talking about the same thing or if what we're talking about has any, any basis in fact. So now, the, now what's combative is about, it has to do with moving forward with consensus given the political economic challenges that I think global polities are realizing are implied by something like a serious or urgent address to climate issues. You see what I'm saying? Like, I, I, I don't, I, this is my sense. I don't know if it's true, but that's how I'm experiencing it. At least not since I'm, I've moved to Europe, you just don't <coughs> find yourself having the same kinds of conversations about whether or not climate change is real. Like, that's not the kind of, that's just not a question from which to, have, to begin a conversation here academically or politically or in the press. It's much more about the nitty gritty bureaucratic hell of actually 
implementing policy, negotiating policy, modeling the future of that policy, and so on, that um, is deadening, right? Like it's 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 slow, deadening, kind of boring. Like I that I think that's kind of the problem now. And so that if there's anything that needs to be combated now, it's like it's the it's the haze of bureaucratic realism that's now in front of us, coupled with, of course, the fact that um, what actually has to happen is so devastating economically since fossil fuels contribute to such an enormous degree of productivity spread out across the global system. That's just, you know, I think the, re the, the real technical, technological um, uh, challenge is coupled with an economic challenge. So the amount of investment currently alive in the fossil fuel industry is, is of a magnitude that just can't be, that, that really, I think, impedes transition even though there's not, even though there's a broad consensus that it has to happen. And so, um, I mean, maybe that's a secondary issue that I didn't really articulate in the answer to, to your question, but I think that's part of it is like, now that we're past the question, now that we're past the question of, 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 of objective reality, thank God, I think there's a, I think there's a new range of, of, of challenges that require or, or spark or trigger combativeness that maybe, maybe still requires a bit of theorization. Right. And I, but I, but I, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is I feel like there's a mood change um, and it's the mood that we're now faced with that actually I think is a bit of a problem because precisely because consensus is the beginning of the conversation as opposed to the end point of the conversation. Now we're moving forward into, into like the real issues of how much money uh, is going to be lost if we actually transition within the 12 year period that the IPCC is suggesting absolutely has to happen. Um, and what it would mean to essentially dismantle a political economic system that resists that, even if even if those com same companies like Shell and and Suncor and et cetera are are you know some of the loudest voices advocating for green technologies and actually are investing widely in it, but you know at, at a at a level of about one to two percent of their overall energy investments. Um, so so that's a new kind of problem, I think, right? Um, and so the combativeness, I think. In my my sense is that it has to do with a mood that we need to actually name and then and then trouble. My next question comes out of Jennifer Wenzel's work. She asks in her article, Taking Stock of Energy Humanities, quote, what claims can we make about the work that say poetry, metaphor, narrative, point of view, imagination, close reading, or the humanities in general, can do in the world? Um, can I ask, did you travel to Greenland in part to investigate what kinds of claims could be made about these things, you know, the imagination, point of view, metaphor, uh, or, you know, in what ways did your fieldwork there get you thinking differently about the politics and meaning of infrastructure? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, great. So, um, I mean, of course, I, I have to admit, I, I feel like that the claim that Jennifer Wenzel is making there is right in the moment that she's making it but i kind of find it like thinking about it now like i feel like we're actually even past that point like i don't think we we lack any cultural production that imagines uh, a kind of connectivity a planetary a planetary condition um or some sort of sort i don't know maybe maybe like a kind of post-human um ecological consciousness like maybe there is maybe there is a deficit of that but i feel like that's that's always been actually part of certain kinds of genres of cultural production like science fiction for instance um and so yeah so i think it but the imaginary is a is a much broader technical term right so um one of the things that 
is inspiring the project in Greenland, which I, I just came back from uh, sort of the first field research trip there, which is part of a, a much larger five-year project. Um, the, 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 the impetus there is to go to the site that is largely understood as the kind of quote, ground zero of climate change. And to, and to think about it and represent it and mediate it uh, from the ground up, in part to break through exactly what I was trying to describe in my answer to your first question, which is there's a kind of dominant Im imaginary that circulates around climate change. And it's largely, and for good reason, um, it's, it's, it's uh, mediated by um, a very specific kind of scientific apparatus, right? Very, we, so we, we, we are flooded with um, certain genres of representation, of circulating gases, of um, the hockey stick graph, you know, there's all these kind of genres of representation that come from the scientific community that largely have been sort of pooled and promoted by the IPCC, which are crucial, I think, have been crucial to getting us to this point. But they're, but they're the opposite of ground up. They're top down. And so a ground up approach means going and thinking about the kinds of discursive apparatuses, the discourses that actually structure how people think and experience and make meaning out of, out of environment in Greenland, which is, of course, already... Um, a very, a very tricky place since it is 95% Inuit. It was, it was under Danish colonial rule for 300 years, and it only uh, about nine years ago gained full sovereignty with an asterisk. And the asterisk is actually the important kind of discursive apparatus that I'm trying to gesture towards here. So um, the, the the Greenland government has full sovereignty over domestic law, uh, over some trade, international trade. Um, but but so long as they receive uh, a $3.5 billion <clears throat> allowance from the Danish government, which they do, and they require it because it's about 30% of their GDP, um, so long as they receive that, there is a kind of, there's a limit to their sovereignty. So there are certain kinds of international trade agreements that they don't have jurisdiction over, for instance. Um, they're represented by the Danish government to the EU uh, and so on. So there's a kind of limit to their sovereignty. And here's the troubling thing that ha comes with this, this apparatus that I'm trying to articulate. The only way for the Greenland government to pay down, I'm sorry, to gain full sovereignty is to pay down the subsidy uh, through the exploitation of mass amounts of fossil fuels that have since um, about the mid-1990s been exposed as a result of melting ice. So it's a kind of awful, tragic, but really interesting catch-22, right? So that the more devastating and advanced climate changes, the more fossil fuels are available, the more likely that the 95% Inuit population gains what effectively would become the, the world's first uh, indigenous nation state. Um, and so there's a compulsion there to exploit and to strategically position uh, indigenous sovereignty in relation to fossil fuels at the tail end of climate change. And so that's the kind of thing that you can't possibly see when you're looking at a NASA satellite image of um, uh, time lapse of the, of the ice sheet melting. But when you're actually there and you start to think about how there are different kinds of discursive apparatuses unfolding uh, through which meaning is made around ice, around environment, around fossil fuels, you start to see a different kind of politics unfolding, right? The arena of politics is very, very different um, than, than the arena of politics that you get a picture of from a NASA satellite imagery. Um, and I think these are the kinds of on the ground, like ground up um, mediations that that will get us a lot further in, in thinking strategically about politics and communication in, in, uh, amidst climate change. So that's kind of uh, a, a, big, a, big, a big yes to what Jennifer Wenzel is saying. I think that the humanities are kind of the only, the, the humanities and social sciences are in a really unique position to go and do this work. Um, 
they're not, they're, the scientific community frankly doesn't have the tools to do this kind of work. And so you get a kind of um, hegemony of representation coming from that community that by necessity and by design misses something really crucial about the, the lived politics of a situation. And I think that's where we come in. You wrote with Brent Ryan Bellamy that energy has two sides. It contains both idea and substance, lifestyle and form of life, base and superstructure. This duality that you, you talk about is precisely, I think, the impasse that we're at currently. Um, you know, for, for this reason, do you, you know, do you think that energy transition depends as much on scientific proof as it does on, you know, renegotiating or recasting the idea of oil as something we're habituated to, part of our, our lifestyle? Yeah, no, I think, yeah, of course, the, the claims that you've pulled out in those quotes are already get us really far down the line of answering the question. But I think it's, I think it's kind of at the heart of what the energy humanities is trying to make a point about and to, and to research, which is that um, energy has not typically been thought of as a structuring mechanism around our ideas about the world, uh, except in a, in a, you know, actually that's, that, that's mostly true, except if you actually go back and, and, and reread the kind of primary documents from 19th century thermodynamic theory, for instance, um, in the 1840s, for instance, von Helmholtz was, was writing very much alert to the way in which energy, uh, and this new concept of energy that was being developed by, um, a range of scientists in mostly in Europe who were coming up with the theory of thermodynamics um, alert to the way in which this was this was a kind of ontology right so like that there, that was part of the excitement of naming energy as a thing and building a kind of scientific um, uh, apparatus around it is that it seemed to actually get to the heart of what we are how we're related to the world how we do what we do um, and because in the 1840s uh, the European scientists were still kind of writing in the tradition of a sort of natural philosophy. Uh, there wasn't mu there, it didn't take much uh, work to, to, to link that to a kind of philosophy or to a set of ideas, right? Because it was already built, it was already kind of baked into what they were doing. But I think that's, but I think that that relationship between I idea, um, ontology, and energy has been, they've been divorced um, in the 20th century. And so part of what we have to do is kind of reconstruct it. Um, and I think I still think there's a lot, uh, there's a lot of space for something like ideology critique. Like, you know, I think that we still need to call companies out on the, on their, on their, on their really like, you know, fallacious claims about, for instance, individual freedom linked to fossil fuels, um, as something that needs to be protected and actually expanded. Uh, but at the same time, those are actually really good sites to go to, to think precisely about how the imaginary, uh, around oil, has been naturalized to such a degree that we just take it as a habit, right? So, so for instance, when you fill up your car and you drive to work, or you know, you pay your you pay your heating bill. Depends where you are, of course, based on what your um, heating is uh, sourced by. But these things, these things, we take as so natural and so important to the kind of subjectivity and uh, the kind of liberal subjectivity, the sort of encased, protected, inoculated subjectivity that is by right. Uh, it, that has, as a kind of right, access to energy. Um, that, I think, is a really important sort of uh, uh, site, if you will, to, to build out a kind of critical but also sympathetic account of how energy is important for I, our, our ideas about the world and our, our historically specific ontologies. Um, and I think that's kind of what the energy humanities has really been focusing on in its sort of first, let's say, five or six years. Um, but I think it's, transi it's transi transitioning a little bit towards questions more broadly about 
um, about communication, about how we communicate about energy, but also what it's communicating to us. So I'll give you a quick example about something I've kind of been thinking about uh, lately, which is maybe going to be part of the book, is I th there's, some, there's something really fascinating about um, energy pricing mechanisms. So if you look at, for instance, the West, West Texas Intermediate uh, and the, the value that is assigned to a barrel of oil on that benchmark, which is one of, let's say, the top three in the world next to the Brent crude um, and then another, I can't remember the name of it in the Middle East. Um, that number, you hear about it a lot, don't you? Right? That's a kind of communication about energy that is, that is headline news. So if you open any newspaper on any given day, that number is communicated to you. But what exactly is it communicating to you? Right? It's a very complex kind of geopolitical, economic um, set of relationships that measure that number and give it to us. And then on the other side of it, it does an enormous amount of work immediately. So that if you're a trader, for instance, an energy trader in New York, that number determines what your day is going to look like, right? It, de it determines what kinds of trades you're going to make, what your, your idea about the next 15, 20 months uh, of the market, if not more. And so the, the work it does in the world is immediate and political and crucial and social. But what happens, what's all the work that happens on the other, on the, uh, on the kind of the background of that number when it gets expressed to us? That's what I'm kind of interested in. Because I think that's also a question about idea and ontology, right? But it's a question about the historically specific ontologies that we have as, as living subjects in a world that is shaped by fossil capital. Um, and so at the risk of sort of stretching this out too long, because this is, this is sort of, I'm, I've just been thinking about this as a, as a, as a version of the, of, of the problem of, of communicating about energy and to and with energy. I think we need to like not just take an ideological position where fossil fuel companies like Shell and BP are suspect and we need to break open um, the, the fiction that they're pumping into the world around their, 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 the, the, you know, the, um, the uh, individual freedoms that come with, with fossil fuels. We still need to do that, but I think we also need to do some slightly more trickier work and actually going back and thinking about what what does the price of oil, for instance, communicate to us about the world that led up to that price? How is it measured? Where is it measured? What's at stake in measuring it the way that it's measured? Um, and so um, that's a different version of, of, of idea and ontology that I think we need to actually have a better account of because I think it's one of them. I think it's, it's, it's the most, let's say, tangible version of this of this problem right it's something you see in the newspaper every day you see news anchors sure. on a daily basis mm -hmm. name the price of oil and and give you maybe two or three sentences about why it went up or down and then move on but it's like it's a structuring mechanism of of election cycles of budgets right in alberta for instance in 2014 when the price of oil plummeted to almost 40 dollars a barrel um i was at the university of alberta at that time within weeks uh, the Board of Governors at the University of Alberta announced a 15% cut to the budget, which was dictated from the provincial government. So the tangibility of these kind of these political social pivots that come around the price of oil are our most immediate connection to a geophysical reality mediated by an economic system that we have a hard time actually getting to the heart of. Um, I asked you to have a look at a video from 350.org, an NGO founded famously by Bill McKibben, uh, a video that uses a lot of explanatory uh, um, tactics of communication, but also a lot of inflammatory kind of emotional tactics of communication. Um, and it's, you know, a video clearly designed to raise awareness about the risks of energy and energy addiction. 
having had a look at that at that video, did you see it as as sort of I do as kind of like representative of a specific way of imagining how energy transition is going to occur? Um, and did you find that that use of emotion um, as the main mode of political communication uh, uh, effective? Um, do you think these kinds of affective appeals are capable of creating a lasting commitment to change? Yeah, that's a tricky question. I think, yeah, it's, it gets to the heart of, I think, as activists, what a lot of us have kind of experienced and, and come to realize in the last 10 years or so. Um, it's a hard question, I have to admit. I, I, think, I think, yes, absolutely, in terms of lasting change, these kinds of things are crucial because what, you know, this, I don't think that an energy transition is going to happen behind closed doors or amongst a kind of avant-garde political elite. In fact, that's precisely the risk is that the wrong political elite behind black back doors <clears throat> uh, are going to dictate and articulate the transition. Um, right. Because precisely because the same kinds of social and political and ecological asymmetries that have, that have marked, the fossil fuel era will get projected into the future, but but circulated through different kinds of technologies and relationships. So the risk is uh, is doubled, right? One, if we don't raise, if we don't generate something like a lasting mass consciousness around energy transition, then the wrong kind of elite will take it and continue the work they've been doing for the past 200 years. The other risk is that um, something like a technocratic left will. Um, will move the conversation forward, which is maybe not the worst thing in the world, but there are dangers associated with it, precisely because it leaves a kind of general public, um, uh, it, it prevents anything like an energy literacy uh, from emerging that can actually democratize the transition, right? So, but the, but the question is, is, you know, what, is that all that has to happen? Um, or will it be sufficient? To, to triggering something like a mass transition. And I, I don't really think that it, it will be actually. And I think that the reason it won't be is because the, the transition into fossil fuels uh, in the 19th century wasn't a democratic process. And it wasn't a democratic process for a, for a series of really important reasons around vested interests and the beneficiaries of that process. Um, those same beneficiaries are still uh, at, at, you know, behind the wheel here. Um, and they're not gonna let go of the wheel lightly unless it's profitable for them and there's a real theory there's a real uh, the theoretical question uh being debated um uh, in different disciplines about whether or not it actually can be profitable to transition to re to full renewables in the next 50 years or if an enormous amount of capital will have to evaporate or get transferred around and i have to say I'm, i've been completely unconvinced by the accounts um mark jacobson has a very very famous article that actually naomi klein cites in her book that you were talking about um, as evidence that, uh, that um, a full transition is possible technologically and economically given what we have right now. So, there, so he wrote this article about maybe four or five years ago and actually the Leap Manifesto, which I think you, were, you, you mentioned in your syllabus as well, they also cite this article. And so, but it's kind of the only one that they're citing and, it's, and there's, there's an enormous amount of literature um, uh, kind of critiquing it for a series of, of assumptions that it makes about a number of things. Um, it gets it gets kind of technical in a way that even loses me, but I think this is precisely the point is like that there's no consensus about whether or not this can be a kind of clean, easy, um, you know, conflict, a conflict free transition. And so what actually has to happen in the meantime, I think is something like uh, a critical progressive politics that isn't afraid 
to actually um, put physical objects in the way of the continued extraction of fossil fuels um, in or precisely in the service of kind of something like a mass consciousness. Uh, right. So in other words, it's another way of saying I don't think it, I, I really don't, I'm utterly unconvinced that something like an ideological shift at the level of mass consciousness will be sufficient to um, to breaking the economic uh, investments that have got us to this situation in the first place. I think they have to be coupled and maybe they, you know, maybe I'm overemphasizing the way in which they're different. Maybe they, they always have been the same. Um, but I worry that I worry, for instance, about any kind of uh, progressive environmental uh, discourse that uh, brackets strategically or politically the question of kind of class difference, for instance, um, and the way in which like the, you know, the, the international division of labor as we have it right now is actually not, it's not beside the point. It's not, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a, a question that is um, a, a tangential to energy transition. It's at the heart of it, right? It's like we use energy as a global system for specific reasons not just because it's there, it has been put through the production process in a very specific way in order to increase productivity, to supplement and then get rid of uh, a kind of bloated labor force because that bloated labor force is a very politically volatile um, variable in the production process in order to maximize surplus value. And so this is essentially like the code that has been running through capitalism since the 19th century. And fossil fuels are at the very heart of that because they are still to date, the most liquid, powerful, mobile form of energy we have, right? And so as a kind of political substance, it's at, it's, it's, I think it's crucial that we find ways to actually articulate it as a political substance at the heart of the economic production that we live under and find ways to break it. Because I think, I think finding ways to break it will be a much more effective way of raising consciousness that's lasting, precisely because then you have a different kind of polity at the forefront a different, uh, not only a different polity, but a polity with a different understanding of its own relationship to the economic system, as opposed to, you know, what happens when you when you go to Whole Foods or something and you ask for a bag and they say, oh, we we support the environment, so we're not going to give you, we don't carry plastic bags anymore, and then they kind of wash their hands of the problem, right? Like it's just so so offensively insufficient, uh, but also self-satisfying, and I worry that the even the progressive left is sort of falling into this trap of sort of self-satisfied ideas about itself as opposed to kind of material intervention. My uh, next question is about uh, philanthropic capitalism. You know, Trump declares we're out of the Tr Paris Agreement, the U.S. is out of the Paris Agreement, and in the wake of that, you have New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg offering to personally foot the $15 million bill accounting for the U.S.'s financial commitment to the U.N.'s um, framework, for, uh, framework Convention on Climate Change. Um, do you think these broadly celebrated acts of philanthropic giving are, are meaningful or radical? Do they attack climate skepticism and selfishness? Like, are they necessary high-profile interventions? And can they create anything like lasting change, in your opinion? I, I, I immediately think of some, somebody like Elon Musk. Maybe Elon Musk, like, two years ago. For not, sure. Not today's Elon of Musk. Of course, yeah. Um, and uh, which, so he was really promoting, for the last five, six years, a really kind of convincing, easy... I, I mean, I say easy, like as a it, politically, it's very easy, uh, self-satisfying discourse of uh, transition that starts from the from the, the the firm upwards. And Google and Facebook were onto this as well, right? Like Google's um, Google claims to be uh, carbon neutral in part because they have um, 
they've inoculated themselves from the U.S. energy grid by building up their own energy system. Um, and, and the idea that you get from those companies when they go and give their talks at TED Talk, for instance, is that uh, they are just visionaries. This is, a kind of, this is an example of innovation, and innovation of this genre scaled up will, is the answer to the problem, right? Why? Well, because it's actually very profitable. It's not, just that it, it cut, it's not just that it mitigates against economic losses. It actually becomes profitable precisely because Google and Facebook and Amazon and Musk five years ago were, or two years ago were imagining um, uh, themselves as energy companies, right? And so that, so you have to, for that to actually be scalable in the way that they're, they're promoting, in other words, to a kind of global energy system, um, right, the kind, of, the kind of moves that get obfuscated by those sorts of feel-good claims um, are so enormous and politically important to what actually has to happen according to the IPCC that I think they actually are more dangerous than helpful. And so I just, I see that as resonant with something like Bloomberg or kind of uh, philanthropic energy consciousness or something coming from the ultra rich. Of course, it does a lot of important work. And I mean, there's no reason not to take that seriously. But, um, but I, I think we should always be really sensitive to the, getting back to your really, I think, astute uh, point about power and empowerment. Um, I think we should be really sensitive to the way in which <clears throat> those kinds of ideas about innovation and transition are empowering for who, right? They're empowering precisely for the companies that are at right now the most profitable in the world. Um, they don't do anything to democratize ideas about, let alone access to energy. They actually do the opposite. They monopolize energy by becoming energy producers, by, by becoming energy companies. You write um, in an article that, quote, the twin fields of social anguish that characterize the present are environmental catastrophe and capitalist crisis, or, you know, could say, could say economic crisis, but you're more pointed about it, and say capitalist crisis. Um, why do you feel it is necessary now to take seriously capitalism's social environment and environmental effects uh, and perhaps even imagine ways to go in an entirely different direction beyond just these mild reforms like a you know, carbon tax or voluntary environmental protections? I mean, in, the two, in 2009, 2010, in the wake of the financial crisis, it was maybe less true for a, for a couple of years, like all of a sudden it was actually possible to talk about capitalism as a system after, let's say, 20 years of academic and political discourse that tried to, um, tried to pretend as though like system was a bad word or something. Um, suddenly it became visible precisely in crisis. It became visible as a system and so people could start talking about it again. Um, but I don't know, maybe that has dwindled a little bit and we've moved towards something else, <clears throat> a different kind of political uh, acceptable, acceptable political discourse, and I think it's a problem for exactly the reason I was trying to articulate with regards to Google and Facebook and um, and Bloomberg, which is that. I, and so I'm taking my cue here from Andreas Malm, who um, has published a really kind of crucial book called Fossil Capital. It's a crucial book for what we're talking about because he goes back to the 19th century and thinks seriously about about the vested interests that um, dictated the switch from essentially what we would today call a renewable uh, uh, um, energy system powered mostly by water mills towards something like uh, steam power, which of course came largely from coal. Um, and so in his re-narration of the last 200 years of capitalism with fossil fuels, not as a tangent to that story, but at the very, very heart of both why and how capitalism unfolded the way it did, um, he, I think, 
the long game of that project, which he kind of articulates at the end of the book and also in some of his most recent talks, is that fossil fuels and capitalism are, are, are inextricably linked, right? So if there, to the extent that we can think about capitalism as a system, as a system that is asymmetrical and uneven, but nevertheless works as a system across our globe, um, it only does so as a result of its facility with fossil fuels. And so, um, you know, one then immediately has to wonder about what kind of economic system is actually feasible or possible with a transition to renewable uh, energy sources, um, given how much investment politically, socially, and economically are in fossil fuels. Um, and so his point is that we actually need a kind of left, we need a really strong, articulate left uh, politics to break to break that impasse. Um, and so, I, and I think he's, I just think he's simply right. And so Timothy Mitchell, I think, I, I believe I saw some of his work on your syllabus too. Uh, Timothy Mitchell's book, Carbon Democracy, makes a really, really similar kind of point, but with a less optimistic um, conclusion. So, so Mitchell's project is, is to think about how the very language of democracy was uh, only possible in the 19th century in England because mass amounts of workers were, were digging up coal from coal mines and then shipping it along very discrete, uh, um, localizable uh, infrastructures, right? And so that means that those workers have the capacity to put a stop to the entire economic system simply by standing in front of the coal, right? Like preventing it from going to the factories. Um, and so democracy as a language built around kind of, you know, the worker uh, and worker rights and all of the kind of campaigns that were waged in the 19th century around those things was possible because of the energy infrastructure built around coal. And so the bad news for him is that oil infrastructure is uh, completely different from coal infrastructure. It's very hard to find. Uh, it's mostly subterranean. Um, and so blocking it is a very different kind of problem, right? So actually putting your body in the way of the circulation of oil is tricky, not because there aren't pipelines in the world, but because there are hundreds of pipelines in the world. So, it's, you know, if you look at like, I'm sure Emirates talked a little bit about this as well. Um, if you look at maps of, of pipelines in the United States, for instance, it's just like, it's, it's, an, it's a, an enormously complicated big grid of old, uh, almost unmappable infrastructures. And so if you block one, it's really not a problem for energy companies to circulate it through a different kind of network. Um, and so the, the, the result of this for Mitchell is that we, we actually don't have the material capacity right now to re-enliven the democratization of energy precisely because of the material embedded specificities of, of oil infrastructure. And so uh, that's a problem. And it's a problem that's not going to go away anytime soon, even with the switch to renewables. But one thing that I think is actually, um, one, if, so if we take this seriously, right, that there's some sort of relationship between the, the physical nature of energy infrastructure and something like a de democratic politics. If we take that seriously, and I think we should. And I still think, actually, there's something available to us in the map of uh, our current energy infrastructure, which is that all of those pipelines go somewhere most of them coalesce in specific geographical spaces in the world. In the United States, it's Cushing, Oklahoma on the one hand, and a place called Erat, Louisiana on the other. So that's where most of the natural gas and the oil all come together to get refined, to get priced, uh, and, then to get, and then to get shipped on, uh, out to market. And so in my mind, if there's a relationship between energy infrastructure and the kind of coming democratic politics that's going to be required for a renewable transition, those two places are going to be really important. For, for politicizing, because at the moment, they're not politicized at all. 
And so, so I'm sort of, I, 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 yeah, this is maybe a little bit uh, beyond the question that you're asking about relationships between fossil fuels and capitalism. No, but, no, it's great. Um, yeah, in terms of in terms of a kind of politics that we, I think maybe we need to start thinking seriously about building in order to prevent something like the Googles and Facebooks and Elon Musk's of the world uh, dictating something like a, a transition that essentially monopolizes uh, energy as opposed to democratizes it. These kinds of places are going to be really important for thinking strategically about. And that, you know what we do with them, I don't know. Um, I have some ideas, and I published an article about it, um, but I, I worry talking too much about what I'm actually suggesting is perhaps not not uh, wise. Um, but I think we need to politicize them in a number of ways, and maybe the first step is actually just like mapping them, raising awareness about them, and then learning as a public about what actually happens in those spaces. Since what we're talking about when we're talking about climate change is as much about how and where and why energy flows in the way that it does, uh, as it is about what's happening to the Greenland ice sheet. So that's to kind of like circle back to my initial point about terminal landscapes. Like these things, we kind of lack a we we lack a discourse and an imaginary for thinking about them together, except as except as analogs for one another. But they're they're intimately linked, right? And so a politi the politics to come that will break something like an impasse, I think, is going to have to be um, alert to the ways in which those sites um, are, you know sites of, uh, um, of continued reproduction of a kind of old economic relationship to capital that I don't think is going to get us anywhere soon. We've talked about some solutions that stay within the current capital, capitalist system. Um, where do you see examples, uh, or do you have any examples of people proposing solutions that question and could even replace the current system? Yeah, so I'll give you, I'll give you two quick examples. Um, the first is the exact off opposite of the example you just gave about about Google, which is that I feel like that. So you're absolutely right. There is a kind of fascination with the with the innovative capacity and the imaginary that comes with these kinds of technologies. I think at the very same time, um, you can uh, reflect on the um, the kinds of articles that were getting published in the last year or two around Bitcoin mining and the amount of energy that's required to produce uh, that that commodity. And so when you start getting pictures of the factories in China in particular where Bitcoin is mined and you start seeing how much of um, uh, energy is required mostly from coal to produce that commodity, it also produces a kind of shock, right? Like an important, an, an, an important reality adjustment that maybe for the time being doesn't make bridge the gap back to kind of um, capital as a as a commodity in the world that also is deeply dependent on a series of kind of extractivist processes um, that are hard to mediate. But I think it starts to do the work of that. And so I think from a kind of strategic perspective, those kind of producing that kind of connectivity, that kind of cognitive mapping of, uh, of capital or let's say, you know, the production of value and the amount of energy required to do so, which is a which is a kind of thing that's been happening for a long time in, in environmental humanities um, and in media theories of, of environment. Uh, I think are crucial, right? Because that's I think that's like the first step is to just see it is to see a con connection between these things. Um, and then on a kind of more practical political level, um, <clears throat> my colleague Darren Barney at McGill, who I mentioned earlier, he has a couple of articles that he's published recently about um, uh, <clears throat> cooperatives in Alberta who are trying to trying to live in the wake of deindustrialization um, as agricultural communities who are essentially 
you know, uh, redesigning their local energy system uh, along renewable lines, but also kind of socially equitable lines out of necessity for survival, right, as opposed to the motive that we see in something like um, the Googles and Facebooks of the world, which is to maximize profit and to inoculate against market volatility. So I think as a kind of motive governing something like cooperatives, and I'm not, I'm not necessarily advocating for like, you know, co-ops, uh, I'm not advocating for them, but I think it's an important example of what, what a transition looks like when you have a different set of motivations and imperatives in place that are not, that actually have nothing to do with profit and they have everything to do with sustainability and, um, and subsistence, right? So I think of those things become kind of governing logics of how we talk about and implement transition. We're going to look at it, we're going to be looking at a very different kind of social system on the tail end of this transition, <clears throat> which I think most of us could probably get behind and be a little bit more excited about. There's a, there's a, there's a number of reasons why, and, and this again is a kind of insight that I think is really coming from environmental humanities. There's a number of reasons to be really uh, suspicious of the kinds of technologies and the social ecology that comes from those technologies being mined in the places that they do get mined around like lithium, for instance, um, in northern Quebec or in Africa. There's, we should be really suspicious about what happens in the, in the kind of uh, before that technology is ready for market. And so that's just another way of saying that I think that the only real, the most promising political and discursive uh, interventions that I'm seeing right now are ones that actually look at the back end of these things as opposed to beginning with what happens or what's possible with the technology when, it, when, it, when it's ready for market. It's everything else that happens like to use this, oh, I, don't, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but like, you know, digging to the hidden abode of production. You know, when you actually see how a thing is made and what the social costs of the production of those technologies and those, and those resources and those, those precious metals that make things make these technologies possible in the first place, you start to get a different picture about what you know not only what politically has to happen, but actually kind of where those the where they might happen. They might not happen in New York City and in London, and you know they might not happen in the in the ca the global capitals of the world. Uh, they might actually have to happen in the in in the periphery where it all starts. I guess is what I want to say. That's how I would. That's how I try to avoid pessimism. Is to think, um, you know, this is actually. Post-colonial studies is not is not it, it, it's not exhausted itself precisely because the energy question and the way in which resources are pulled from the ground and in, and in the in the process of being pulled from the ground produce a kind of social asymmetry or unevenness or inequality are exactly what we're looking at right now in this coming transition as the thing that sort of continues right gets reproduced recast into a new era doesn't get touched so I think if we touch it and start messing with it then that's promising. Um, here in Nova Scotia, where I teach, there is, as there is, of course, elsewhere, a profound attachment to the beauty of nature, um, right? There's, of course, this vital sense, too, here, I think, politically, that things like fracking need to be resisted. Um, my question is this, does that love of nature, a sense of its beauty, um, contribute to or counteract the kind of outrage that is perhaps needed to change the way that human beings extract resources from nature. Um, can environmental con in communication rely on that sense of the natural world as something sacred um, in order to trigger this need, need for organized action? You know, so I actually did my undergrad in Nova Scotia at St. Effects. So I'm very familiar with the landscape that you're, that you're describing, and I can uh, sympathize with those experiences. Um, 
and I think about it often. Uh, I I think that it there's really good reasons to avoid this kind of sort of romanticization of the natural um, for for all kinds of reasons in terms of the genealogy of that thought, in terms of the way it's been used by different kinds of political projects in the 20th century. But I don't know that that's a reason necessarily to abandon something like an intimacy with those landscapes as a source of as a source of politics. So I think you're right that we do need a sort of, sort of um, a discourse of shock, and and I think to a certain extent those two things come together precisely when you start to see the withering away of the landscapes that you take to be your sort of background, um, you know, or let's say the ground of your kind of subjectivity. Which is what happens in which is what happens in low-lying coastal areas around the world, which is what happens in forests of New England, um, and things are changing so fast that uh, I don't think I think it's a bit of a luxury to just rely on a kind of romanticization of the natural. I also, at the same time, precisely because of that reason, because things are changing so quickly, and you can see those landscapes shifting before our eyes, it actually might paradoxically paradoxically become a source of of sort of radical possibility, right? Um, and so I don't know. I, I, I would, I'm, I would, I'm tempted to just, I'm tempted to completely agree with you and say we need to, um, or maybe not. You're, you know, you're asking a question, but I've, I've heard other people suggest this as well, especially on the left, that that um, romanticization of nature is in our way. And I don't know that that's, that's actually true. I think we just have to be smarter about it. Um, and one way to do that, I think, is actually to try to. This is, this is again to get back to what I was trying to suggest about going to Greenland. Is something happens when you're in those spaces that's not necessarily translatable into a discourse or a politics. I think it's experiential um, at a level and kind of hits you at a, as a subject at a level that is kind of crucial um, for prefiguring, I guess. I'm, I, I'm hesitant to use that word, but I think it can possibly be a source of prefiguration. So there's an experiential, relational kind of, let's say, experience that can come from being in those spaces that we have to keep on going back to, but not within the language of kind of the cherished, uh, sacred, you know, romantic, um, like past tense of nature. I think it has to be a very different kind of discourse that, that comes out of that, but I still think those spaces are crucial to drawing out something like um, uh, an ecological relation, you know? And this is why I think, po the, this is why I think it's not an accident that actually post-humanism in the humanities has been one of the spaces where ecological politics has been at its loudest, right? Like I think there's a, you know, Donna Haraway's work and Karen Barad. Yeah, and, and so I, I mean, I'm, I, I have like a lot of people, I have like a lot of problems with some of the things that are said in that, that uh, discourse, but I think at the heart, it's not an accident that, 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 that much of what we're talking about, they're talking about too, but at a higher decibel. And frankly, with like slightly more interesting concepts, um, it's just a hard, I think the only way to reconcile the way in which those concepts hit us, uh, at least in spaces in the academy that are not necessarily fluent in post-humanism, uh, the reason that it hits us as a kind of, as a discordance, as opposed, opposed to something like attunement, is because it's actually, uh, <clears throat> a lot of us don't have the luxury <laughs> or time um, or experience to, to go out into those spaces. And when you do, I think something happens, and that's important for drawing out something like a ecological politics.